All right, let's open with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give praise to you this morning. We come together with joy that we have the opportunity to look into your word. We ask that by your spirit, you would illumine our minds and show us the truth. Help us to cut it straight and get it right. Lord, may you use it to expand our understanding of who you are, that we might give you greater worship and that you might be praised. Again, Lord, we thank you for this great blessing of your scriptures and the privilege we have to openly look into them. We give glory to your name. Amen. So this is week number 14 in our study of the uh, eschatology, and we're over in Ezekiel, and we've worked our way um, all the way through chapter 33 of Ezekiel so that we can get context to what comes in the last 15 chapters of Ezekiel. And so we're we're just about there in um, chapter 33. We saw that word of the destruction of Jerusalem made its way to Ezekiel. And so um, not just the siege of the city, that began the capture of the city, that began a year and a half earlier, but the actual destruction of the city made way to um, to Ezekiel, and so God in some of these prophecies says that Nebuchadnezzar's sword is God's sword, meaning that God empowered Nebuchadnezzar and directed him to wreak all this havoc that he wreaked, not only on. Israel, but after he gets done with Israel, he goes to the sons of Ammon, he goes to um, Moab, he goes to Philistia, goes to Tyre and Sidon, all of this taking 15 to 20 years to, for him to totally decimate all these people. And then ultimately he goes down into Egypt, destroys Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's armies. They all leave Egypt and go into Ethiopia And so all of these lands, not just Israel is left desolate, but even Egypt itself, the scripture says, is left desolate. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This is what he did. This is uh, the havoc that he wreaked over all the known world at that time, destroying anybody who would oppose him, anybody who, if he set up a puppet king and they rebelled against him, then he would wipe them out and all their people out. And so this is what God intended for Babylonian armies to do. He says that their sword is my sword. And that's a little startling when you think about it, that God um, judged basically the whole world except for Babylon at that time. Babylon gets judged 70 years later when they're overrun by, um, some people would say the uh, Medo-Persians is mainly just the Persians by that time. Um, The Medes and the Persians did get together and were a great army, but uh, by the time uh, they get to overrun Babylon, it's mainly just the Persian kings who are are ruling. And we'll ultimately see all of that if the Lord tarries and we get to go through Daniel, where we see that in living color, where the Persians come in and destroy not Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, um, is overtaken by the Babylonians, killed by the Babylonians, 
I mean by the Persians, and they take his kingdom. And then Daniel lives underneath the Babylonian king and underneath the Persian king. And has significant influence on the Persians allowing the Israelites to go back to their homeland. Jeremiah prophesied that that would be 70 years. Apparently, Daniel has Jeremiah's manuscript and is reading it and comes upon that part where it's 70 years and he looks back and he says, we've been here 70 years. And so things begin to happen for them to return to their homeland. It's kind of the big picture of, of what's going on here. Um, so God has severely judged the world. And if you think about Israel at this time, when you get to the end of chapter 33, Jerusalem's been destroyed. All the, there are no Israelites except for a few poor ones that Nebuchadnezzar had no use for still in the promised land. The promised land is absolutely devastated. All the cities, uh, Jerusalem itself, the walls are torn down, the temple is torn down. Everything's been burned. All the people are dead. There's nobody there to bury them. So they rot as corpse out in the field. The birds and the beasts and all of that come and have a, a, a feast on them. And the land is absolutely desolate. So if you're an Israelite at this time, um, especially a faithful Israelite, you're in, Bab you're in uh, Chaldea underneath Babylonian rule. So that's, um, that's the state of the nation and if you're an Israelite, all hope is gone. You know, what God promised, he's now undone. Um, anything to do with the promised land is defunct, except for, and we saw this as we went through those 33 chapters, three times God speaks of the restoration of Israel. And he, he uses these terms. He says, um, that he would restore them to Israel, the land of Israel, uh, to the land he swore to their forefathers, and also to their land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. Three times we see those references, and we, we pointed those out as we went through them, of where God um, foretold, prophesied, that he would return Israel to the land that he swore to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the last one being Jacob, which is why he calls it the land of Jacob. And of course, it was Jacob who had the 12 sons, who had 12 tribes that go in and actually possess part of the land. So all of this to lead up to what God prophesies in chapters 34 through 48 of Ezekiel, and the tenor of Ezekiel changes dramatically starting with chapter 34 because it's all about um, restoration and renewal. And you, you can't see that at the very beginning of 34. You'll notice that as we walk through it, that God doesn't say it's the millennial kingdom. But I believe starting in chapter 34 all the way through 48, you're talking about the millennial kingdom. And that will become more apparent the further we go from the beginning of 34. And, and I'll point those things out to you and we'll talk about them so that we can try and reason together, does that make sense? But I don't know if you've read all the way to the end of the book, but if you have, then you know where I'm headed because I believe that's where 
um, Ezekiel was directed by God to prophesy. We don't know exactly the time frame here. Ezekiel drops the time frame references at this point. You know, he's, he's gone chronologically, basically, um, almost every chapter is chronological in order. A couple of times he backtracks, but it's one of the things I love about Ezekiel is he gives time frame references and they're all chronological through the book, all the way through um, chapter 33. A couple of times he refers to something that's already happened. In Egypt, he refers to something that's going to happen, that by the time he gets to where we're at in the book, it has not yet happened, but it will. Nebuchadnezzar will overrun Egypt, and that's well documented, not only in the Babylonian um, literature, but also in the e Egyptian literature. It's well documented, these battles and what happened. Um, it's not just a fairy tale, it's not just a mystery. Did this all actually happen? It's well documented in ancient manuscripts. And so, um, we, and we have some of those. Um, enough to say that what the Bible says is true really did happen exactly as the Bible predicted it would and then ultimately did happen. You're talking about Israel themselves. Yeah, and, and think about it. If you're Israel sitting there and listening to Ezekiel, although they didn't pay much attention to him, but nevertheless, if you're sitting there and listening to Ezekiel, and there were some faithful ones, you know, uh, Zerubbabel would have been in the crowd listening to Daniel going, oh, and then God ultimately leads him back to build the temple. And then Nehemiah would have been in the crowd whom God leads back to build the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the gates. Um, so those guys were there, but most of them didn't pay any attention to it. And that's to their detriment. And even God says that multiple times through here, that even though Ezekiel is being a faithful watchman, you still don't listen to him where you should be listening to him. And so, um, but... Ezekiel is painting the portrait, and you would have thought if you were an Israelite, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, that if you're sitting there and listening to Israel, I mean to Ezekiel talk about this, you would have thought um, he's crazy for one thing, because we're under Babylonian captivity. But once the Persians came in and things changed, then hope would have swelled up, and these things that Ezekiel's talking about, they would have thought were near term. And so that's why they go back and they do some of the things they do. But we're, we're going to make distinctions of why some of this was not near term and how it could not have been near term. You know, it's only from the time when we get through with Ezekiel writing here, it's only a hundred and maybe 50 years until the scriptures go silent for 400 years. And we, we have nothing in scripture that speaks to those 400 years except for the prophecies. And um, so you got, we're maybe 550 years from the birth of Jesus Christ as Ezekiel writes this. And, you know, we're 2,500 years remo removed from uh, Abraham and all that happened there. So... Um, Will we get to Zechariah? <laughs> Right. Into 
Yeah, and, and right now, I'll be honest with you, I'm debating um, where to go. Are we going to do selected chapters of Isaiah and Jeremiah and then look at the minor prophets a little bit um, before we get to Daniel? I actually don't know. Um, I'm trying to decide which is the wisest way to go because they all build on each other and they all link together in Daniel who talks about not only um, what you're talking about, the branch coming and all that, but the ultimate end of the age. Daniel's about the only guy who goes that far in that much clarity except for Ezekiel. Isaiah definitely goes there, but it's somewhat obscure because he's writing 150 years before Ezekiel's writing. So, it, you know, the further you go in Scripture, the more clarity you get. And we believe in progressive revelation. And that's why I say that the New Testament doesn't reinterpret the Old Testament. It gives more light. And we're going to talk about that today. Because um, if I ever go, right? <laughs> um, because... These things are important the way that you think about them and the way you frame it in your mind. is, all, And you're going to see us link some of the things we said at the very beginning to where we're at here in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 34. The tenor changes, although you don't notice it in the first 22 verses. It's, it, you, it sounds just like the same thing he's been talking about of restoration. But I promise you, I, I, it changes. And um, I'll show you where that happens. It really begins to happen in, in verse 23. But we're going to go back. Last week we looked at the first 10 verses just in rapid succession. Because in the first 10 verses of chapter 34, this is where God says that he's going to judge the leaders. And just read a couple of verses here with me. In... Uh, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. So this is God coming to judge the Israelite leaders. And if you know anything about the way Israel set up, those would be the priests that he's coming to judge, whom God set up as shepherds over the nation of Israel. And so what he says here is that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're taking care of yourselves you're self-centered, you do everything for yourselves, but you do nothing for the flock. Now, that was true many times in Israel's history, but we're talking about a specific time here that he's talking to them. And God says, I mean, can you imagine being one of the priests of the Israelites and God saying what he says in verse 10 to them? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep, so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. 
God speaking to the Israelite leaders saying that I'm going to take the, the sheep away from you and I am against you. That's an amazing statement considering that this theocracy was established by God and these people are in control and authority by God. And now he comes to judge them and say, I am against you. And we're going to talk about when is this? When is this in either current history, past history, or future history? Because it's important about when is this time frame. Um, But God is opposed to the leaders of the Israelites. Now, um, and if God said to you, I'm going to deliver my flock from you, what does that mean about you? I'm going to take my flock from you. What does that speak to the person to whom he's saying? Does it not say that they're not part of the flock? I'm going to take my flock from you so you can no longer devour them. So he's judging them, and I believe he's judging them to no longer be part of the flock of God. That he pushes them out. And they're Israelites. They're true Israelites. They've been leading the people, although they've been in a position to lead the people, but they've been taking care of themselves. But they're Israelites. And now God says, I'm taking my flock from you. You're no longer part of the flock. All right? He goes further as we go further in this chapter. This is important the way you think about Israel and what happens to Israel ultimately. Because look what he begins to say in verse 11. And, well, 11 through 16 are God saying, you weren't good shepherds, so I'm going to be the shepherd. Look at what he says in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them all from the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Now, if God said, I'm against you, he's not going to go search for you, right? So that tells you that the shepherds are not part of these people whom God is going to go search for. They've been ousted. They're no longer part of the nation. Now, And then look down in verse 16, where God says, I will seek the lost. We just saw him say that. Bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Now, if you put all this together, look in verse 4, what he had said to the to the shepherds who he judged. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, and the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, and the scattered you have not brought back. So God here in 16 says, I'll bring back the scattered, I'll bind up the broken, I'll strengthen the sickened. You can see God doing the work of the shepherd, that God himself is the shepherd. 
bringing together his flock, strengthening those who are weak, binding up those who are broken, finding those who are lost. This is God himself stepping into the position of leadership over the Israelites, having judged the leaders. Now, you just start to think, right? Where did that happen in history? Has there been a time when God did this without leaders in the land? Becomes questionable. All right, we keep going. And... Right. Jesus, Jesus himself picks it up in John 10. Mm-hmm. So it's still occurring right then and there. And yet the New Testament writers carry the same false teaching, the mistreatment of the true sheep, all the way to the very end in Revelation of John. So you see that that's going to run its course. And the warning is for the true believers that are sitting in these false churches right. and being fed garbage. Well, in Jesus' ministry on the earth is a glimpse of this. He healed the, the broken. He healed those who were sick. He did not gather together the Israelites because that was not his purpose. But you see a glimpse of the shepherding in the life of Jesus Christ as he, as he performs the miracles and does his ministry. And so if he could do it then, he can certainly do it wherever this chapter is talking about, right? Okay, so look at 12 through, 15, through 14. Um, very important references, I believe, here. This is God bringing his flock together, healing them, restoring them. And then in 12, he says, As a shepherd cares for his herd, in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. Now, if you're an Israelite, and Ezekiel is speaking to you, and you've only been out of your homeland for maybe 15 years, what is in your mind? What was in Ezekiel's mind? Would he have been thinking about some spiritual place far off? Or would he have been thinking about the physical land that they just got ousted from? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious, right? I mean, they would have, I mean, here it is. God's saying, I'm going to restore you to the mountains of Israel. And unlike they are today, you notice they're good grazing ground. They're fertile. It's not like that today. So, how does this happen? As you go further in Ezekiel, he talks about how it happens. So that's where we're headed. But here, this is God saying, I'm going to be your shepherd, and I'm going to take you to the mountain heights of Israel. I'm going to allow you to lie down in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. Nobody prompting God to say this. 
not Ezekiel putting, you know, saying what he wants to say. This is God speaking to the people through the mouth of Ezekiel. I mean, you can see that in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, This is God speaking. And so, and we saw this all through Ezekiel, although it's been hundreds of years, 800 years, since Joshua in the land. God keeps bringing the land up. It's not anybody else who brings it up. God does. And he keeps speaking about this land that is called Israel. Now, some would say that he's not talking about physical land here. This is a spiritual land that he's talking about. But I think if you take the simple reading of what it says and who was saying it and who he was saying it to, that doesn't make sense to me, that he would be talking about some spiritual land. Because, I mean, they just got ousted, you know, very short time ago. And remember, if they, I mean, certainly those who are faithful would remember that three times already, Ezekiel has talked about God taking them back to the land that he swore to their forefathers the land that he gave to Jacob, to their land, Israel. These, these references to this piece of property that, he's, that God himself is bringing up, not that anybody else is saying it. So I think, it, to me, it's pretty clear that at least at this point, he's talking about physical land and the land that they used to live on but is now desolate. Now, again, there are some, especially those who would hold the covenant theology, who would say this is a spiritual land and this is all spiritual talk. And their, their argument would go something like this. The church has replaced Israel and God will give the church rest, but not in the land of Israel because all of us couldn't fit or um, that that land is now desolate and it doesn't look like what the scriptures here are talking about and referring to. That would be the argument. And so God is not talking about physical things. He's talking about spiritual things in which the church has replaced Israel as the one who inherits the promises. Go ahead. If it was spiritual, yeah. The plain meaning is, is from the literal. Well, and, yes, and I don't mean to be critical, but because the, coupled with that, the New Testament reinterprets what was said in the Old Testament. And there's no question in the New Testament that God's talking about a spiritual kingdom in many places. No doubt about that. And so they say, so that reinterprets what Ezekiel said, that he wasn't talking about a physical land and a physical kingdom. He was talking about what the New Testament speaks of, which is the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense. And, and so that's why, you know, why do we cover that at the very beginning? Why was that so important to talk about those distinctions and that reinterpretation? Because here it is. This is the verse, these are the chapters that they would reinterpret based upon what the New Testament says. 
Now, if you believe that the New Testament opens and broadens the previous prophecies and, uh, that were given, then there's no reason to believe that these promises given to Israel are not true and won't be fulfilled. But if you believe that the New Testament reinterprets what was given in the Old Testament, then you're free to go anywhere you want to with this. That anything this New Testament refers to, this, here it is. This is not what God is actually saying. That is not what he meant when he spoke through the, verse, through the mouth of Ezekiel. And that, to me, just doesn't make any sense. Now, that may be my shortfall, and they may be right, but I don't think so. And so, <laughs> I land where I land because the simple reading of Scripture is usually the right reading of Scripture. Sure. Yeah, and, you know, um, if you read the, the prophecies and you look at the ones that talk about the Messiah and you look at the ones that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming, literally to every detail, right? Why would you not believe the same is going to happen to the rest of them? I, it just, I just, I, I fall apart. I just don't, I mean, it's just not logical, um, even from that perspective. So, I mean, God, I believe, will fulfill every prophecy perfectly in the end of the age. And so I believe he will fulfill these, that he's promising to the nation by an Israelite speaking about the land from which they were just ousted. It's just where I land, and I don't, I don't have any need in my understanding of Scripture to spiritualize this. It works without spiritualizing it. And so I believe that those who go there are reading into a hermeneutic what they want to believe, as opposed to letting the scripture speak to us and we yielding to it, instead of manipulating it. If you spiritualize, you never will know what it is. Well, yeah, and, and remember this, when Christ came, every prophecy was fulfilled literally. They didn't break a bone in his body. They divided his garments at the bottom of the cross. They pierced his side. I mean, they drove nails in his hands. Um, he was thirsty, and they gave him sour drink. I mean, these are all literal fulfillments of what the scripture says would happen to the Messiah. I mean, perfectly. Right. And, and Ezekiel describes that temple. I mean, in an excruciating detail. And why would he do that about something that's spiritual? I mean, he measures it. He doesn't measure it. Another man measures it. But it's three chapters of six cubits, 18 cubits, 12 cubits, 19 cubits. I mean, he's measuring every single thing you could measure. 
And why would he do that if we're, not, if we're talking about something that's spiritual? So, I, I mean, it just disconnects for me. Yeah, you know, there was a day when I had it in my mind of how God saved people. And the thing that changed my perspective on that was the scriptures are very explicit in how God really saves people. And I'm going to tell you something. He's going to say that in chapter 34 about Israel, and then in chapter 36 he's going to say it. And that is spiritual, without any question. But that doesn't mean this physical is not true. I mean, here we sit, right, physically, but we've been changed spiritually. And we belong to a kingdom that is at this present time spiritual, right? The kingdom of his beloved son, but it will be physical. That's right. And the New Testament expands that, doesn't cancel that, doesn't reinterpret that. So... All right, off the soapbox, back down on the ground. So 16 through 22 um, is judgment. And remember, this is to the nation of Israel. And there's, I'll tell you this, not all Israelites make it into the kingdom of God. We've already seen the leaders are separated out. Now look at what he says beginning in verse 16. And we, we just read 16, but because he kind of transitions. I'll seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. So those are the people being brought into the kingdom of God. But then he says, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I'll feed them with judgment. Now these are Israelites. These are people who are sitting right there with those who are broken and uh, week and he goes on and he gives us more understanding because you're like okay what does he mean when he says that we'll read on verse 17 as for you my flock thus says the Lord God behold I will judge between one sheep and another between the rams and the male goats all right so this is God coming to the Israelites and parsing them out. Take judging one sheep, judging another sheep. Individually going through the flock and parsing. Keep reading. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pastures, or that you should drink the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? All right, so this is, this is what's going on. You have these fat sheep who are strong, and they go and they eat the good grass, and as they do so, they tread down with their feet all the other grass that could be eaten, but they don't want it because it's not the best. And then they go and they drink the pure water, and as they leave, they stomp their feet, in the, in the waters, so they become muddied, and the other sheep must eat the, drink the muddy she, the water. And they must eat the, the grass that's been trampled down. That's what he says is going on here. These fat sheep have no regard 
for anybody else. I mean, they could eat where everybody else eats, you know, eat, allow some of the other sheep to eat that same grass. And they don't have to walk through the water and make it muddy, but they don't care. They have no regard for anybody else because keep going. He, he says more about them. There are more actions here. So in verse 19, as for my flock, meaning you're not my flock, as for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what, what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. God is going to make distinctions in the nation of Israel between those who disregard everybody else and those who are trumpled, who have to drink muddy water, who have to eat grass that's trumpled down. I don't think he's talking spiritually, I mean physically here, right? These aren't sheep. These are people. This is the flock of God. Mm -hmm. What are those green pastures? What are those still waters? It's the word of God. Right. So trampling on the word of God, diluting the word of God, breaking it down so that people don't even get the word of God in their diet anymore. And these are the, the ones who will be called out. These are the Israelites who will not be in the kingdom of God. He says right here, I will judge them. You know, back in verse 16, that I will destroy, I will feed them with judgment. That is not people who are in the kingdom of God. Those are people who've been ousted. So even as the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom begins, God has to go in and judge the leaders and then divide out the sheep that, yeah, you, but not you, yeah, you, but not you. All the Israelites don't make it into the kingdom of God. Now, we'll go to the New Testament and we'll look at some of this, okay? Because I will tell you this, reading Ezekiel, not this year, but years ago, changed what I used to teach out of Romans 11. It has to. And we'll go there and I'll show you why. Because right here in the, what I believe is the millennial kingdom, God is dividing out between those who are his flock and those who are not his flock. Those who are faithful to him and those who are not. You um, keep reading here. As we go into 20, God repeats himself. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat and the lean. God is going to make a judgment and God's judgments are irreversible. Do you see this, David, as the preceding into the millennial or the white throne? Well, the white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. This, I believe, at the beginning. And I'll show you why uh, that I believe that. Um, we'll keep going. Um, look at the actions of these fat sheep that he, he gives us more. You know, they, they eat the good grass, they uh, pollute the, the not-so-good grass, they pollute the waters, they drink of the good waters. But then down in um, 
21, he gives us more of their actions. Because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad, therefore I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. Very, very clear that God is judging between sheep. Some for his some not for his. So even of the Israelites, because that's who this is written to, we can't come in and insert ourselves in this prophecy. This is written to the Israelites, God speaking to them in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel speaking these words about the sheep of God. Now, I wouldn't say there's nothing in the New Testament that doesn't give a similar reference. Um, I'll show it to you real quick. Time is it? We'll finish here in a second, but let me show you this. Look over in Matthew. Matthew 25. Christ comes out of the temple. The disciples ask him, what will be the sign of your coming? And we get that unbelievable prophecy of Jesus Christ that goes through chapter 24. And then you come into chapter 25 and he gives several parables. The parables of the fig tree, the parables of the ten virgins, the parables of the talents, all speaking about being ready for his coming. And then you get to the judgment in verse 31. This is Jesus Christ. Again, this is the same. He just finished prophesying about his return and all the cataclysmic things that will happen and even the elect would be lost except for God cuts it short. All those statements, then the three parables, and then he comes to 31 of chapter 25 of Matthew, and he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep. From the goats. Sound familiar? Except for this isn't just in Israel. What's it say? It's all the nations. Now, you have to think about this, and we're not going to do this this morning. When Jesus Christ comes on his glorious throne and all the nations parade before him, when is that? And Andy's question is, is on point. Is that at the beginning of the millennial kingdom? Or is that at the end of the great white throne judgment? Well, the great white throne judgment doesn't talk about anybody parading before Christ. But certainly the millennial kingdom does talk about everybody parading before Christ, being amazed at who he is, even if you're an unbeliever, still amazed at the view of Jesus Christ and giving him glory, even though you may not be a true believer. That is clearly... Prophesied. What John is given by the Lord himself uh, about that description. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Right, coming out of chapter that 1 of Revelation. That is headed into the message to the churches. By the way, the, the same description that Daniel uses exactly. as he's given his final prophecy. Same description. The pre-incarnate Christ 
looking there like he looks at the end uh, in the millennial kingdom. Same description. This is unmistakable. And Right. Right. Well, and so what we have here, I believe, and look at verse 23, just so you can see. I'm sorry, I'm back over in Ezekiel 34, 23. So you can see that we're talking about the millennial kingdom because here's where he, he begins to say it. Verse 23, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. We'll talk about that. And he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And then you look down and like, 29 of that same chapter, I will establish them for, for them a renowned planting place. That's the fruitful valleys. And they will not, again, be victims of famine in the land. And they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. When has that happened? When there was an anti-Semitic rhetoric everywhere, both historically and today. But here he says they will no longer do that. This is not talking about anything that has already happened. David is not ruled over his kingdom again. This is future, I believe. And the further we go, the more you'll realize it's future. But those two glimpses right there tell you that. So at the beginning, God calls out the the leaders and he calls out the fat sheep those who are not truly his own. And so what's left is those who are broken, those who are trodden on, those who are sick, those who are weak, those who are lean. Those are the true sheep of God. And this is similar to what John David has been preaching in the Beatitudes, right? Bankrupt spiritually, those who weep over their sin. All these, this this broken down people when they realize who they are before God, those are the true worshipers. And that's who makes it into this kingdom, not the rest. And, and right. Absolutely. That's, that's right. That's right. So you have conflict. You have a lot of the things that are going on, except we have a righteous king ruling right. instead of the reversal and, of the and don't, and don't be fooled that there aren't unbelievers in the millennial kingdom. There are scores of them. Matter of fact, like it is today, the majority are unbelievers. And the scriptures make that clear. And... I'll just tell you, I don't know why people say that no one lives from the tribulation times into the millennial kingdom. Scripture does not say that. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, I would challenge anybody to bring me a verse that says all the unbelievers are killed on the planet. I don't believe that. I believe that scores of people live from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. And those nations still exist but they're ruled by righteousness. They're ruled by resurrected saints. And the nation of Israel is ruled 
by the 12 apostles. Oh, that's right. That's right. So there is procreation in the millennial kingdom, and there is a final battle at the end of the millennial kingdom where God again judges the unrighteous. Then comes the great white throne judgment. Then comes the great and the small standing before the throne of God to be judged eternally, not just temporally. Okay, we'll get there, right? There's a... There, there is just so much that you need to get your mind around. But always do this. Yield to the scriptures. Always yield to the scriptures. Be willing to give up on what you believe if it's contrary to the scriptures. Why would you hold to it if it contradicts what the scripture says? You ought to discard that. Let it go. And if you're uncertain, that's a good place to be. Keep reading, keep studying, keep in the word. Thanks for your time.